not like I separate my life. I mean, my life at all. I, you know, I, I, I live with this. And they know. They very much know. And once in a while, they're asking me, so are you going to save her mom? Are you going to save Melissa? There are currently 211 people on death row in Texas, six of which are women. Melissa Lucio is one of those women and the first Hispanic woman to be sentenced to death in Texas. Melissa is 52 years old, five feet, two inches tall. Her hair is brown, her eyes are brown. Her prior occupation is listed as janitor on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice website. Prior prison record, none. On February 17, 2007, paramedics were dispatched to a residence where they found an unresponsive two-year-old child who subsequently died. Evidence of abuse led to the arrest and conviction of Melissa, the child's mother. On August 12, 2008, Melissa was sentenced to death. For over 10 years, she has been awaiting her fate and is now on her last appeal. On this episode of Latin Ickies, I speak with one of the only people who has unique insight to this case, Sabrina Van Tessel, a French-American film director and journalist who has directed more than 45 documentaries and who followed Melissa's life for three years, leading to her documentary, The State of Texas versus Melissa, which is out now. This episode contains information that may be sensitive to some. This podcast is not intended to constitute an endorsement by Ladinikis or your host for either candidate with respect to the upcoming presidential elections. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. We want to go beyond listening. We're ready to speak up. So join me in conversation every week as I meet Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. As you know, a podcast is a journey, and I would love for you to follow this one. So join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx and reach out. You can also find out more at our website at wearelatinx.com. I am um, half French, half American. My dad is American, my mom is French, and I grew up in both countries, actually. Uh, but I've been living in Paris for, for a while, and most of my work I've done in the U.S. So it's quite interesting because even though I am in Europe, uh, I was kind of the specialist of, you know, of, of the U.S. and I would cover, you know, all the, the stories in the U.S. all the time. So how it started, um, I uh, was planning to be a narrative filmmaker, really. And one day I read an article about women forced into marriage. Uh, that was 20 years ago, and I discussed it with my producer then, and I said to him, I'd like to do a, a feature about that, that, and he'd be like, you know, you should probably do a documentary about it, you know, uh, do a documentary, then, you know, you can nourish yourself, uh, you know, and then you can write it, and um, I basically did that documentary, and I never came back, I never, I never went back to, you know, yeah. directing a narrative. Uh, what happened uh, then was so incredible to me. I mean, just the fact that you deal with real people and real situations and, and you know, people, they, they see it on TV, but we live it and, and, and what we share with, with people. So I guess um, I'm a humankind lover. 
that's what I love so much about being a documentary filmmaker. It's, it's just something really, really fascinating that, you know, I just became completely passionate about. And, and so I, yes, I never went back to uh, narrative filmmaking, uh, even though, uh, you know, I had offers. There's always a new story I want to tell, but a real story about real people. I think there's this like um, idea of the fly on the wall kind of thing. And we talk about it a lot when, you know, like these incredible stories that we see in documentaries and you're like, you forget that there's someone on the other side of the camera, a human, like a real person who feels real feelings. And, and one of my questions that I really wanted to ask you was like, how do you, how do you separate that feeling of, well, you're a human being, you have feelings. And, and sometimes what you're seeing on the other side of the camera is something that either goes against your values or, or makes you really angry or really sad or really happy. I, I mean, it could be a variety of things. So is there a way to separate that? Do you even try to separate that? And if so, how? Uh, it takes time. I think it's like a surgeon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the for very first time, uh, you know, or forensic expert, you know, the very first time you see autopsy pictures, you're like, Ugh! and then, you know, little by little, you get used to it. Well, at the very beginning, I would, I would get sick constantly. Um, it was just too much for me to swallow. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it was just so intense what I would hear and, you know, uh, the things that, you know, I would go through uh, and, and, you know, I'd come home and I'd be sick for days. And um, little by little, I mean, I've learned somehow how to detach myself that when, you know, when I come home, you know, I, you know, I have children as well. So, you know, when I go home, you know, I'm, I'm just like, okay, this is, you know, now I'm like in mom's mode and I'm not going to think about that anymore. But usually when I'm filming, I'm so into it. Um, uh, and, and, and usually it's, it's, it's abroad, it's somewhere, you know, uh, you know, remote in the US, you know, in some motel or some small town and I'm, I'm, I'm all by myself and I'm just completely immersed by it. I don't think that you, um, you can completely separate yourself though from um, the stories of people, uh, especially when, you know, you're dealing with topics like death row, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm constantly, for example, uh, for the state of Texas versus Melissa, I mean, I'm constantly in touch with Melissa's kids uh, or Melissa's family. Uh, you know, I mean, you can't really share something so intense and, and, and just go back to your normal life. It doesn't happen that way. And also the other thing that happens is people give you things along the way. They give you objects, for example. Uh, I remember a woman who had um, lost her daughter because of school bullying, uh, she had given me towels and she had embroidered, you know, embroidered, you know, like, like she had written the names of my children, you know, on, on, on the towels. And, you know, I still have them uh, in my living room. I have uh, some objects people have, have made for me. Um, uh, Melissa's mom, uh, you know, has given, you know, uh, presents to my children. I mean, I receive letters and, you know, every single time I receive a letter from death row, my kids are like, oh, mom, you got, you know, you got a letter from Melissa. Uh, my kids have written to Melissa. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like, like I separate my life. I mean, my life at all. I, you know, I, I, I live with this and they know, they very much know. And once in a while they're asking me, so, you know, so are you going to save her mom? 
Are you going to save Melissa? It's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty intense. Um, in some situations after I film, after I, I finish the documentary, I, I, I need to separate. And, and people understand, they go back to their lives. But what I was uh, saying also is how much people need to talk, you know? People have very few listeners. I mean, um, people are very lonely. And I think, I pretty much think that you could make a documentary about just anybody. Everybody has a story. And people are just fascinating, uh, you know, in, in many, many ways. And, and that's what I like. I mean, I, I love the human experience. That's what I, you know, why I do what I do. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to do what I do and to get to meet such extraordinary people and, and you know, the most vulnerable people in our society. Uh, and, you know, I refer to um, when I was doing the state of Texas versus Melissa in Brownsville, where you <laughs> grew up, um, I felt Melissa's family, I mean, I felt, you know, that like there were the untouchables. I felt like I was in India, you know, and you know, there are the untouchables and the poor and, and, and the ones that, you know, are not heard and you know, that nobody gives a voice to. And I wanna be uh, their voice if I can, you know, that's why I do what I do. Here are some fast facts about the death penalty. There have been 294 clemencies since 1976. Clemency is defined as mercy or leniency, and it's when an executive member of government either suspends the execution of a sentence in order to give the prisoner time to find ways to have it reduced, reduces the sentence, or pardons the convicted offender. Of those 294 clemencies, three have been in the state of Texas. The first was in 1998, the second in 2007, and the third in 2018. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, 13 innocent people have been freed from death row. The method of execution is by lethal injection, and the sentence is determined by a jury. And another interesting fact, a defendant can get the death penalty for a felony in which he or she was not responsible for the murder. This is called the Law of Parties, where an offender can be criminally responsible for the conduct of another. Before I ask you why you chose Melissa's story, which I, I want to ask you and, and we'll get to that is, and, and like shift into the state of Texas versus Melissa. As a, as a journalist, as a reporter, as an investigative reporter, making documentaries that are so intense. And as you described that there's no real way to separate yourself completely and just kind of like be a body with a camera and move along, you know, with the story when you're telling the story through the documentary, because it's through your eyes and, and as, as a director, then is there an inherent bias to it? Is it or, or how do you make sure that the story you're telling is, is not, do we want it to be emotional? Do we make it emotional based on like what you believe as a director and your values and, and, and what you want to be achieving and your goal through the documentary? Or is it something, or are you just doing it for educating and, and you know, informing the public? Like, where does that balance lie? And how, as a director, do you make those decisions? I don't think that you really, I don't think that you really ask yourself these kind of questions, you okay. know? Uh, I, I don't really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind who never prepares her interviews. 
Okay. So very different from most journalists. Uh, and and I, I think I'm, I'm much more of a filmmaker than I'm a journalist, even though what I do is, you know, investigating reporting a lot. But um, what I like is, is tell stories. And, and I don't like to prepare interviews so much. I like to connect with people and, and somehow just the questions, you know, just pile up in my head. And, you know, and, 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 and I, I, I basically, you know, get into, you know, their eyes and, and start, you know, kind of like observing the moment, observing what they're doing and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to film this, we're going to film that. And, you know, kind of being a spy in their environment. Right. Uh, I always, of course, uh, I'm very super extra careful about, you know, the veracity of what I'm saying, of what I'm, I'm saying. Um, I mean, I, I, everything that, you know, I say or, you know, that I bring, the, the information I bring in documentaries, I mean, I check maybe 10 times. So it's not like, you know, uh, that's very important. Uh, you know, my, my, my goal is not to take side. Right. I'm not someone who takes side. I'm here to be uh, kind of like an observer of a situation and bring it to the public. And they decide. They make, you know, they decide what they want to think about it. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like, like I want to say something and I'm like, okay, you know, you need to believe exactly, you know, what I'm saying. I mean, that's not my type of documentary uh, filmmaking at all. Uh, I, I, I like to uh, leave it to the public and they choose, they decide. Um, so yes, I mean, I, I triple check, you know, all my informations. Uh, I make sure, you know, and, and, and in, very, in many different ways, um, you know, that, you know, uh, what I mean to say, I guess, is that even if Melissa, who I believe is innocent, uh, was guilty, it would have been a story to tell. You understand? Right. It's just that, you know, I'm not the one to kind of take side and, and, and decide what you need to think. I'm... Uh, the opposite of American TV. For listeners first, before we get into this, can you just tell us a little bit of what is this documentary about? What are we expected to see? Well, I did, um, a few years ago, I did a documentary um, about women on death row. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was asked to... Um, interview, uh, I was assigned to interview a few women. One of them was Melissa Lucio. Uh, and I nearly did not interview her because there was just nothing about her. Uh, there was like two articles uh, on some local media, you know, um, on internet. I mean, nothing at all. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess her story is not very interesting because, you know, no, no journalist has ever covered you know, her, her story. But finally, I did go to uh, Harlingen, which, you know, is, well, Brownsville, Harlingen, you know, that, you know, Rio uh, Grande Valley. Um, and uh, I met her family. And the first thing they said to me was, you're the first person that we're meeting in 13 years. No journalist has ever reached out to us. Uh, no lawyer 
has ever reached out to us. And I said, what do you mean no lawyer? What about her lawyer at her trial? These, they said to me, oh, he never acknowledged us. He never spoke to us. Uh, he never asked us any questions. And I'm like, oh, really? And I'm like, but Melissa had 14 children. Surely they testified. And they're like, no, none of her kids were allowed to testify. Uh, my mom wasn't allowed to testify. Uh, none of her brothers and sisters were. And basically she stood there for, you know, for four or five days with no defense. And um, then they said to us, to, to, to me, they said, listen, um, uh, and, and Melissa could not have done what she's accused of. She's accused of killing her two-year-old daughter and, and basically abusing her for like months until she died, basically. And she's, they said to us, that's impossible. I mean, Melissa was never abusive to any of her children. She had, you know, I mean, she had so many kids and Melissa was very lenient. She wasn't the kind to discipline her children. And, and you know, the, the little girl, she fell down the stairs and we'd like you to, we'd like you to see the stairs. Would you like, would you like to see the stairs? So I'd be like, yeah, sure. And they drove me there. They drove me to the stairs where the little girl supposedly had, had fallen from. And the next day, um, and, and, then, and then I'm sorry, they, they said all kinds of things to me like, uh, well, uh, you know, the DA in her case, he used her case to be reelected. He's in prison now for extortion and bribery. And I'm like, really? And then they're like, yeah. And you know, um, her lawyer, right after the trial, went to work for the DA. They were friends. And I was just like, what? I mean, it's the kind of story that, you know, you right. see in film. You're like, you can't even believe it. So uh, I, I- No one had picked it up for so many years as well. Like, for 12 years. I mean, you know, she's, and she was on her last appeal. I mean, she's on her last appeal about to be executed. So, you know, uh, you know. And so, um, so the next day I, I went um, to Gatesville, which is where Texas, you know, death row is mm -hmm. for women. And uh, I interviewed Melissa. And right away, something happened between us. She, she, you know, she just came out and we looked at each other. I was the very first reporter to ever interview her. I mean, she had never been interviewed before. And right away, I mean, my gut feeling was no way. She didn't do that. I mean, it was just, I just, it was just my gut feeling. And of course, you know, I, I could have been wrong, you know, and, and, and of course, I have enough experience to know that, you know, every family member who's, you know, um, who has every, every family who has, uh, you know, a member of their family basically in prison will tell you they're innocent, you know, so, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know that story. But, but my gut feeling was telling me that, you know, there's just, there was just something more to this story. It, it just, just didn't fit in. So I, I, I asked her who her lawyer was. She gave me the name of her lawyer and right away I, ca I called the lawyer and I said to her, I'm like, listen, I just met your client and I just met her family, um, you know, yesterday and they're telling me all kinds of things. And I mean, there is something really bizarre in, in Melissa's story. And her lawyer said to me, um, listen, I've worked on her case for 12 years now. Uh, I know for a fact that she's innocent. She was just completely railroaded. Uh, thank you for your interest, but she's about to be executed soon. So I guess you are coming into the picture too late. 
And so, and she's like, but if you want, uh, I will send you, um, you know, all her files, uh, you know, and, and you can read them, you know, you can go through them. So for weeks, she's just sending me, uh, I mean, I don't know, 4,000 pages of, of child protective services files. And, you know, I, I started read, reading everything because Melissa was uh, under, you know, um, child protective, you know, services investigation all the time because she lived in poverty and she had too many children. Now, she was never abusive to any of her kids for all these years. Never. For like 15 years that they monitored her, nothing. The only thing was that, you know, the house was too crowded. Uh, there was neglect. Uh, some kids would basically, you know, uh, cross the road and without being, you know, uh, watched. You know, those kinds of things, right. really. So uh, I was like, okay, bizarre. Bizarre that, you know, someone who's never been abusive to any of her children, especially when you have 14, you know, all of a sudden it's going to be abusive to the last one. I mean, that's kind of odd. Usually, I mean, people, you know, don't become psycho one day. I mean, and people who say, oh, yeah, though, no, I mean, nothing happened. That's not true. There's always something. You can always find something. And Melissa was never aggressive, even to, towards adults. She was very submissive. She was someone who, she was a victim. She wouldn't fight back, basically. And so, uh, and then I read her entire trial and, and there's just nothing. There was nothing. The only thing they, they, they got against Melissa, to be clear, was that they uh, interviewed her for seven hours. There were five men from 10 you know, in the evening to 3.30 in the morning. She had lost her daughter. Her daughter had died that day. She had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. She hadn't slept. And there are four males who are basically bombarding her with questions. And Melissa was a victim. Melissa was a victim of rape when she was a child. She was a victim of her boyfriends, you know, uh, she was violented and she was someone who would, you know, give, you know, basically surrender uh, to uh, adult males, you know, and that's what she did. Uh, she finally at 3.30 in the morning, you, you see her in her interrogation, she, she's sleeping, um, she has no lawyer, she doesn't even know she needs a lawyer. I mean, she is... She is Latina, she is poor, she is the kind of woman who would give birth to her children in her kitchen, on her kitchen floor and not even go to the hospital because she didn't have money. Do you think she knows that she needs a lawyer? No, she doesn't. And she's basically, and they're, they're telling her all kinds of things like, oh, they all told us the truth. You're guilty, you're guilty, you know? And so she, finally she gives up, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you hit your daughter? those bruises yes yes she never admitted to killing her daughter though she never did till the end but she did admit to the bruising because and she explained it to me it needed to stop and and they wanted to hear something and 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 she felt trapped and that's the only thing that got her convicted because no children ever said none of her kids ever said that she was abusive to mariah Actually, they said that they saw their sister falling down a flight of stairs, but her lawyer at the time decided not to bring that information to the jury. Okay? So all of a sudden you're seeing this and you're like, oh my God, 
you know okay. is this is this why i mean you know i have alerts on google and they're probably i mean every month people are being liberated from you know wrongful convictions and this system is just really broken and if you are on death row it is because you're poor if you're on death row it's because you're black you are hispanic you are disabled you're poor uh, and you basically have no money so you have a court appointed attorney uh, who doesn't even have the means to do an investigation uh, usually have da's who are you know go to you and say okay uh, you're guilty take 30 years Oh, I'm not guilty. Oh, you're not guilty? You want to go to trial? No problem. Let's go to trial. Death row. And that's what happens. So I wanted to try something new, and I'm looking for fun ways to connect with you guys further. Ariel, my producer, gave me this great idea to call this segment La Esquinita, The Corner. This will be a work in progress, but I'll be sharing some of my thoughts of the week. In high school, I had different friend groups, and naturally, when we all graduated, I lost touch with some of them, but there was one friend group in particular that I still talk to at least once a week. We're a group of five, two guys who are twins and three girls, and they are four of my best friends, but we're scattered around the country. For every birthday, we all send each other gifts. So for example, on my birthday, they all made a separate group chat, decided on what to buy me, and sent me a book of all the headlines of the New York Times on the day of my birthday, since the year of my birth. Yesterday, it was a twin's birthday, so we sent them a gift. And though it may seem like a small thing, it has brought us together in many ways. I love that about us, because I don't think that happens often. These are four of the people who I know will always be there for me, and I will always be there for them. So here's to friends. If you have a group of friends who you don't get to see often, set traditions. There are many ways to keep in touch and maintain the friendship alive. But let me tell you more about, about Brownsville because you are yeah. from Brownsville. Yeah. Let me tell you more about Brownsville District Attorney. Armando Villalobos, who um, is serving a 13-year you know, prison sentence for bribery, extortion. So he would bribe judges, he would you know, bribe uh, attorneys, he'd bring them to Vegas, uh, you know, he would get money from the rich, uh, you know, and then the poor would get death row. Okay? Mm -hmm. So he's involved in many different death row cases. Mm -hmm. including one where uh, the SELU managed to free uh, that person. It was the Manuel Velas case, another Latino uh, in 2009, um, with exactly the same district attorney and the same forensic experts. So uh, when I met, because um, he is in prison, so he had a large you know, uh, uh, FBI investigation and um, he was trial and all that. And I was told, um, I, listen, um, every single uh, one of his cases should be reopened, but we don't have the means for it. So even though the DA is on death row and um, her court appointed attorney now works for the DA's office, which is a little bizarre, um, 
and really did not bring any witness in Melissa's defense. Uh, and, and she basically stood there with no defense for five days. Um, that's not a problem. That was his strategy. That's basically what the Court of Appeals keeps saying. Oh, the DA is in prison? That has nothing to do with her case. Oh, uh, the court-appointed attorney did not defend her? That was his strategy. Um, what else you got? So once you're on death row, I mean, your chances of getting out are slim to none. And you'll make your research, but you know, your chances of getting out once you're on death row, I mean, are just, especially in Texas, where they, they do. And uh, I can tell you something, uh, death row is supposed to be for the most dangerous people in our society. And if Melissa Lucio is uh, one of those, we're in trouble. This case is unbelievable. And I've studied this case for three years. There is no lawyer who knows this case better than I do. And, and there is just nothing, nothing. It's, it's just void. Former Cameron County District Attorney Armando Villalobos was sentenced to 13 years in federal prison for his role in a bribery and extortion scheme. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Texas, Villalobos accepted over $100,000 in bribes and kickbacks in the form of cash and campaign contributions in return for favorable acts of prosecutorial discretion. Currently, Villalobos seeks to be released from federal custody under the CARES Act due to high risk of contracting COVID-19. In a statement of response denying the request, the court wrote that the defendant was a lawyer and elected public official who greatly abused his power and violated the public trust over many years in order to personally enrich himself. So do you, the, you, you think that this is a mix between the wrong people who were trying the case be, and, and the system at the same time? Because you're saying that this um, person is, is, is in jail right now as well. So what did he get out of this or what, what is it? Well, it's a mix of both. I mean, in Texas, uh, in particular, um, DAs get reelected uh, thanks to big cases. Right. So a case, especially a woman, is something that, you know, will be picked up by the media. And so that's a problem. Judges be, get elected, you know, DAs get elected. That DA at the, at, at the time was even, did a, even did a commercial about the Melissa, Melissa Lucio case to help him get reelected. So, and he knew, he knew specifically uh, which cases to get. He'd get the cases of, you know, child abuse cases because he knew he had a very large, you know, Latino community and that would appeal to them, you know. Um, so uh, that is, that's just to start with. The problem with the system also is that um, you never get, uh, you never go to court, right? I mean, you, you get, an, they're offering you a deal right away. So the way it happened for Melissa, she gets arrested at 7 p.m. Then, you know, they interrogate her from like 10 p.m. to 3.30 a.m. She basically gives, you know, a confession, uh, so-called confession. And uh, by five in the morning, she's indicted and she's already, you know, they're already telling her, okay, say you did it, you take 30 years. Okay. <laughs> So basically what happens from that moment, if you decide to 
not take the plea deal. And that works for everybody in the US, right? That works for every single conviction. And you decide to go to trial. You will have the DA's office who has all the means, all the money, who's like the biggest, like, 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 you know, the, the biggest, you know, attorney, you know, attorney firm in the US, so to speak, you know, they have all the money in the world and all the time in the world. And, and you basically have no chance. You stand, you, you, you stand no chance. And there, um, the statistic is in 90% of the cases they win. So basically a lot of, of attorneys will tell their clients, listen, take the deal. Just take the deal. Because if you decide to go to court, you'll get life. Sabrina, did you ever feel, knowing everything you know, did you ever feel that you were in any type of danger or that maybe it wasn't the best idea to go down this path with the story? Oh yeah, especially that border town. Yeah. <laughs> Border towns are a little, um, you know, particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, everybody knows everybody, and at the beginning, um, you know, they were just like, "Oh, wow, you're you're, you're you want to investigate about the Melissa Lucio case? I mean, that's a, a name I haven't heard in a very long time. You know, they they weren't really, you know, um, too worried about it. And then, um, and then. I would, I kept coming back, right? I kept com coming back every couple of months. And then, you know, all of a sudden the, I became a nuisance, you know? Right. Uh, uh, I tried to speak to uh, the prosecutor and he basically um, hanged up on me maybe five or six times. Uh, Melissa's lawyer, I mean, was almost impossible to find. Uh, people would stood me up. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, and, and the very last my very last night in Harlingen, uh, I, I got into my room and I felt that my room had been visited. You know, they were like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll never know for a fact if, it, if, it, if I got to be paranoid, but I felt kind of watched at the right. end. I felt that, you know, I, I said to my DP, I'm like, it's time to go. Let's go. Uh, you know, uh, we're not wanted here anymore. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was definitely, um, scary for me at the end. And, uh, I was happy not to uh, live in the area. And actually even her family said to me, uh, from the very beginning, I mean, what are we risking if we talk to you, you know, something bad going to happen to us? It, it is, it is a concern because, you know, I mean, especially at the border, I mean, people disappear. So I was just like, okay, you know. <laughs> This is still the U.S., but, you know, we're at the border. I'm just let's go. Let's go. So in the documentary, were you able to speak to either, I mean, I don't know if you spoke to the DA. Were you able to speak with the lawyer and get him on, you know? Yes. So the DA, uh, unfortunately, uh, because he's in federal prison, there was no way for me to inter interview him. Okay. So, uh, and frankly i don't know what he would have said i mean there's just so much on him that's investigated you know by the fbi that you know i mean anyway i mean what was i gonna say but no there was impossible it was impossible for me to meet the da in prison but um i did meet um, um melissa's uh, court-appointed attorney um after a year and a half of not replying to my emails not answering the phone uh i'm basically uh, 
uh, in front uh, of, of the Brownsville, you know, courthouse with mm -hmm. my DP and, 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 and he comes right at me. And I know his face, right? Because I've, you know, <laughs> done my job. Right. So I said to him, I said, uh, Mr. Gilman. And he's like, yes. I'm like, Sabrina Van Tassel. And he jumped. He, he basically jumped back. And he said to me, oh, you caught me. And I said, well, Mr. Gilman, you need to speak to me. I mean, you're her lawyer. I mean, I've spoken to, you know, every single one of her lawyers since then. I mean, why wouldn't you speak to me? And he said to me, um, oh, that seems like a trick. That seems like a trick to me. And I said to him, I'm like, why? Why would you feel that way? You know, um, and he's like, well, would you like to come and talk in my office? And I'm like, okay. So I basically, you know, told him the questions I wanted to ask him. And he said, okay, you know what? I'll give you an interview tomorrow morning. So first thing in the morning, I go into the Brownsville courthouse and interview him. And um, for a good half hour, uh, he's basically, you know, telling me things about Melissa. And you really, I mean, you really believe he was, he was part of the district attorney's office. I mean, he was a prosecutor because he really, I mean, only had bad things to say about her, which is very surprising for, you know, her lawyer, you know? Um, and, and I kept asking him, I, I kept asking him, like, what was your strategy? Did you believe it was an accident? Did you believe he couldn't answer? He had no idea. Why wouldn't you call the children? Oh, yeah, you know, they were like animals and, you know, they would have, you know, uh, run all over the place. And no, you know, that wasn't a good idea. Uh, why didn't you call her, uh, you know, her mom? Oh, no, no, no use for this. No use for that. And he kept saying she was a bad mom and, and she was a drug addict. And, and you know, he, he was just really, it was just really surprising. And, and I think, you know, um, uh, he basically... Um, shoot himself in the foot all by himself, so to speak, you know? He really just destroyed, you know, himself without much of my help because he was just so, you know, out of line and, and, and clearly did nothing to help her, clearly hated her, you know? Now, um, the prosecutor in her case, same thing, uh, hanged up on me maybe five times. So every three months I'd call and be like, hi, I'm Mr. Padilla, Sabrina Van Tessel. <laughs> Uh, and then one day he said to me, meet me at the courthouse. And uh, so a year later, I was able to interview him. So, but it was also the case with a lot of uh, her kids. Her kids had been so traumatized and they were all over the States. And, you know, they felt that, you know, their mom was completely, you know, railroaded and all that. And they were, they, they didn't want to speak to me at the very beginning. It was just really, I was just very persistent and, and just always every few months, like, you know, trying to reach out to them again until finally they understood and, and we got some kind of trust and, and, and they opened up to me. But everything, yeah, in the documentary, I'm able to, uh, to I, I basically got every, everybody apart from the DA. So how long did it take you in, in total from the moment you spoke with Melissa for the first time to when the movie, or the movie, sorry, the documentary was ready? Uh, almost three years. Wow, that's a lot yeah. of commitment. Yeah, it's um, a lot of commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A story like this, I mean, that doesn't happen every day though. It's a once in a lifetime thing. And the reason I say a lot of commitment is because 
this takes a toll on your family, on you emotionally, and on all of the people you're interviewing, um, especially Melissa. Oh, you know, it gave them so much hope uh, for their for the family, for Melissa's mom, for her sisters. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, they felt like, oh my God, we're not alone anymore. Uh, you know, you guys are here, and you know, I mean, it. You know, we it really became. Uh, uh, something very important, you know, for them. Um, and also for, um, for Melissa, I mean, for Melissa, of course, I mean, Melissa from the moment, you know, just, just the fact that I believed her right. for her was just, it, it was just incredible. She was like, you are believing me. Uh, and when the film was selected at Tribeca and it got so much press, she was like, I can't believe these people believe me. I can't believe these people are writing things like this about me because she's been so mistreated for, for, for her entire life, you know? And, and they only said, you know, bad things about her. So, you know, it, it, was, it was really uh, important to her. And uh, Melissa is always so thankful. She, every, you know, we've read, we, we've, we've wrote, written to each other for like three years now. So I probably, we've probably exchanged like about 200 letters. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, in every single one of her letters, she's, she's said to me, you know, she's saying, you know, I prayed for you. I prayed so much for you. And, and you came. And uh, you came into my life. And, and, and I always believed you would, you would change my life. And, you know, she's putting such hope. So for me, you know, also, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, how I can right. go back to my normal life. You know, when you have someone and, and just an entire family and someone who's on death row who puts so much hope, you know, it's very, it's very important. You know, it's, it's really, it's really heartbreaking and it makes you want to uh, move mountains, really, and do everything I can to have her case hurt. If you follow me on Instagram at here, you might have already seen that I recommend books. So I thought of giving you my recommendation of the week here on books, or any other cool stuff I might come across. This week, I came across a podcast episode from The Daily titled The Field, a divided Latino vote in Arizona. It's interesting because a reporter speaks to both Democratic activists and Trump supporters in Arizona to learn about what's going on in the state, which is historically a Republican state. But according to polls, Joe Biden is leading in Arizona. So the big question is, will states like Arizona turn blue for this election? Check it out and let me know what you think. The link is in the description of this episode. DM us at Latinx, or you can DM me directly at Andrea M. Here. What message would you like to give to listeners right now? Vote right. You know, I mean, vote. I mean, of course, of course, my heart is blue, but for so many reasons. Right. I mean, and America, you know, uh, is not exactly, uh, you know, uh, America is a very poor country in a lot of ways. There are a lot of very poor people living in America who are, you know, uh, subjected to, um, to this broke to this broken justice system and and voting you know in the right way in this election is very 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 important and um so that was my message that would be my message not to uh get confused 
The other thing that I would say to, um, to the Latino community in particular would be to, 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 to be united, okay, to be a force. Um, in the same way that, you know, African-Americans can be, you know, be united and, and, and be proud of your heritage and who you are and, and you know, and, and, and get together and make, make your, your voice heard, you know. Um, that would also be uh, my message. And the third message, you know, that I would give would be about Melissa. Uh, I would, you know, please, please watch the film. Please support Melissa Lucio. There's an hashtag, free Melissa Lucio, um, on Instagram, Texas versus Melissa, on Facebook, Texas versus Melissa. Same thing on Twitter. Tweet her name. Uh, you know, we say, we kept saying during the, you know, Black Lives Matter, say her name, say her name, say his name. Yeah, let's say Melissa's name. Because Melissa, I think, uh, if by miracle I had not come into her life, would probably, you know, um, have been executed right now. And no one would have heard her name ever. So, you know, uh, it's a miracle that she's still there. It's a miracle that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal hasn't reached a decision, you know, about her right now. And, um, you know, if we save one person's life, we can save humanity. And let's try to save her. Let's try to, you know, um, to have her come back to her family and to her grandchildren. For my last thing, if you don't mind, I asked my followers if they were having this interview with you, what would they ask? But I'm gonna choose one um, for you to answer, if you don't mind. Did you feel there was something left to be told? Yes, I do, actually. I feel there's uh, the rest of her story to be told once she you know, comes out of, of, the, of death row and gets a new trial and, you know, uh, and gets to come home, that would be an amazing part of the story to be, to be told. The State of Texas versus Melissa is out now on Apple iTunes, Amazon, On Demand, and Digital. You can also learn more on Facebook at Texas versus Melissa and follow Sabrina on Facebook and Instagram at Sabrina Van Tessel or Twitter at Sab Van Tessel. If you'd like to support the cause and make some noise, watch the documentary. And if you post anything on your social media, make sure to use the hashtag FreeMelisaLucio. So guys, as I always say, make sure to support your communities. It doesn't matter what you choose to advocate for, just go out there and help. Connect and inspire others to do the same. Thank you for listening and supporting Latinikis. We've loved seeing the growth and engagement on your platforms. Remember to check out additional information about this episode in the description. Lastly, support us by downloading our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can stay up to date. And join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinikis. Reach out and let me know what's important to you. I'd love to hear what you have to say.